Well, this morning we come to the last, uh, the last great, well, great category, great group that Martin Luther called the Ephesian Hostafel. And you're going, what in the world is an Ephesian Hostafel? Well, it's a German word that basically means it describes the household, the household of a New Testament household, to be specific. Specific. I can really speak. Come on, Danny. Meaning how a Spirit-filled believer is to interact with the other members of their household. Well, we know that he began by addressing husbands and wives. Okay, we get that. He moved on to parents and children, and now today in verses 5 through 9 of chapter 6, he addresses labor relations. Labor relations. Now, think with me here. I can understand why he would speak about husbands and wives, right? Spouses, they, there are a lot of them, all right? And we get that. And we need to under, understand what it takes to interact with each other as how God intends. Well, most families, and I say most, but not all, have children in the home. So, I can understand the, how we should need to, know to interact with children and parents, all right? I get that. But this passage today speaks of bondservants and slaves and the relationship with their masters. Really? Okay, I, I understand that, and I'm going to explain that a little bit in the near future, but slaves and masters? Now, one thing I want us to understand, and we really have to understand this, whether they were called slaves or bondservants, as the ESV translates it, both terms point to the same thing, a person bound to serve their master. You can't sugarcoat this. Well, why this group? Why this group? Why does Paul address this group? It's been calculated that in the Roman Empire at the time, there were over 60 million slaves. 60 million. And before the turn of the first century, a kind of terrible idleness had befallen the, the Roman Empire, and in fact, specifically the citizens of Rome. They got lazy. They thought they were too uppity. They thought they were too big for their britches, more or less. And slaves did almost every bit of the work. Practically all the work were done by slaves. Now, things are now as they were then. By that, I mean that there was a wide range of how slaves were treated and interacted with. Now, as you can understand by the labor relations, I'm going to get to the employee-employee relationship because that's what God's Word, that's what we can take from this. But what we understand too, often there were bonds of loyalty with, with slaves and slave owners, but often there were not. Pliny writes to a friend that he is deeply affected because some of his well-loved slaves had died. That's on his, he loved his people. He loved his men. He loved his women. 
But basically, before the first century and the first part of the first century, the life of a slave was grim and terrible. There's no sugarcoating it. In law, they were not a person but a thing. Aristotle lays it down that there can never be friendship between a master and a slave because they have nothing in common. Quote, for a slave is a living tool just as a tool is an inanimate slave. Varro, writing on agriculture, divides agricultural instruments into three classes, the articulate, the inarticulate, and the mute. The articulate comprises the slaves, the inarticulate, the cattle, and the mute, the vehicles, meaning this in bold print so I wouldn't miss it. The slave is no better than a beast who happens to be able to talk. Wow. The law was quite clear. Gaius, the Roman lawyer in the, inst lawyer in the Institutes, writes, we may note that it is universally accepted that the master possesses the power of life and death over the slave. If a slave ran away, he could expect this. If he was caught, he would have, most of the time, the minimum, a letter F imprinted on his forehead, burned into his forehead. This isn't a Sharpie. This is imprinted F because he was a fugitive, a fugitive. At worst, he was killed. The terror of a, of a slave was that he absolutely was at the whim of his master. Here are some examples. Augustus crucified a slave because he'd killed a pet quail. Vidius Polio tossed a slave still living into, a savage lamp, into savage lamprey eels in his fish pond because he dropped and broke a crystal goblet. He was eaten alive by eels because of what he had done. The slaves who were maids to their mistresses often had their hair torn out and their cheeks torn with their mistresses' nails. Juvenal tells us of the master who delights in the sound of a cruel flogging, thinking it's sweeter than any siren's song. A Roman writer of that day pens whatever a master does to a, sla a slave undeservedly in anger, willingly, unwillingly, in forgetfulness, after careful thought, knowingly, unknowingly, is judgment, justice, and law. And it is against this terrible background that Paul's advice to the slaves need to be heard. And you think that you've had some overbearing supervisors. Well, you might be wondering, and I think deservedly so, why didn't any of the New Testament writers condemn slavery? It's a legitimate question, right? Well, one of the reasons, and probably the main reason, is slavery was an accepted and deeply established part of Roman society. That's the way it was. Paul wrote to change the heart, and when the heart was changed, then the world around them would be changed. Kent Hughes writes, the fact is, by the time the Christian era and the writing of this Ephesian hostile, 
Sweeping changes had been introduced that radically improved the treatment of slaves. Things were getting better. I'm not saying they were great, but things were getting better. Slaves under Roman law in the first century could generally count on eventually being set free. Very few ever reached old age as slaves. In fact, slave owners were were releasing slaves at such a rate that Augustus Caesar introduced legal restrictions to curb the trend. Too many are being released. We can't handle this. Despite this, inscriptions indicate that almost 50% of slaves were freed before the age of 30. He continues to write, What is more, while the slave remained his master's possession, he could own property, including other slaves and completely controlled his own property so that he could invest and save to purchase his own freedom. He finishes by saying, we also must understand that being a slave did not indicate one social class. It was the way it was. Slaves regularly were accorded the social status of their owners, regardless of outward appearance. It was usually impossible. Regardless of outward appearance, it was usually impossible to distinguish a slave from a free person. A slave could be a custodian, or he could be a CEO. He could be a salesman, or she could be a maid. Many slaves lived separately from their owners. Finally, selling oneself into slavery was commonly used as a means of obtaining Roman citizenship and gaining an entrance into society. Roman slavery in the first century, get this, when we think of our recent past, Roman slavery in the first century was far more humane and civilized than the American-African slavery practiced in this country much later. That's a sobering and humbling fact. But the question still remains, why didn't the New Testament condemn slavery? Well, I'll give you four reasons. The positive reforms now in effect regarding Roman slavery, that's the first. The second, because the institution of slavery wasn't generally considered evil, by slaves or masters. Third, an attack on slavery would have labeled Christianity a subversive entity. Also, the immediate demise of slavery would have brought economic collapse and last because in the radical brotherhood and sisterhood and equality of Christianity eventually would be the death knell of slavery. Because our Christian brothers and sisters, they began to treat each other with dignity. Not always, but Paul wrote it to be so. Out of respect to the living Word of God, would you stand with me? As we read Ephesians from Ephesians chapter 6, beginning at verse 5. If you need a Bible, you can find one on a blue one in front of you, 979 on the blue Bibles. This is the word of the Lord. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to a man 
knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who, has both, he who is both your master, their master, and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Now, as a reminder, we need to understand that Paul began this, Christian, or this section of how Christians are to walk and to live by saying that we must all have this attitude. It should be on the screen in front, in front of you. It's found in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for love. That is what controls the whole passage, the passage of husbands and wives, children and parents, and now slaves and masters. Well, how is this to take place? Because there's a distinct difficulty here. Well, and because the Word of God is alive and active, what can we learn from these verses today? Because I don't think any of us have been under the whip of a slave, a slave owner. In our culture, praise the Lord, the institution of slavery has been outlawed. And the closest thing that we have today are the relationship between employees and employers. Well, we're first going to look at the relationship of the Christian employee's responsibility. The employee is given four quick bits of advice summarized by four adverbs for those who love grammar. They are to obey and serve. Now, following the adverbs, how so? Respectively, sincerely, conscientiously, and pleasantly. And if you're looking for an escape clause, there is none. There is none. In the parallel passage in Colossians, the apostle wrote in chapter 3, bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. In everything. Of course, as I mentioned regarding wives submitting to their husbands and children obeying their parents. If the authority asks you to do something that is against God's will, against God's word, and is totally wrong because biblically it is not correct, we are to obey who rather than man? We are to obey God rather than man. Well, we begin with the Christian employee. So first, the Christian employee is to obey by acting respectfully. Acting respectfully. Keep this verse in mind. Again, it's under the umbrella of the entire passage, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Verse 5 of chapter 6. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. Now, does this mean yes, sir? No, sir? No, no. That's not what the fear and trembling is talking about here. There are times in the Scriptures where fear and trembling does mean exactly that. It means fear and trembling. That means great terror. 
in Deuteronomy when the Lord spoke and Moses wrote it, wrote it down. This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven and shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. Now this is true fear and trembling. But what Paul's writing about here, it suggests it's godly reverence. How are we supposed to worship God, you as a Christian? How are we supposed to worship our Father with fear and trembling? Great respect, great respect and honor. It's an attitude that a person of lower rank in the military shows to a superior officer. If I'm a private and a, and a sergeant walks by, I would salute. Would that, would that sergeant necessarily deserve to be saluted? Maybe not necessarily so, but the rank that he is, you salute. You salute the rank, not the man. Now, church, hear me. I'm going to look at you. I'm going to just pretend that I'm looking at each one of you in your eyes. I know that this can be difficult. I know it can be difficult, but God has sovereignly placed authorities into our lives. He has sovereignly placed them there. And believe me, I know, I have witnessed, they are not always the sharpest knives in the drawer. An employee often believes that they know the job better than the supervisor, and they just might. But you honor them. Honor them. Now, does respecting the superior mean that you don't make suggestions? Depends on the attitude. If you're making suggestions to make the superior look bad, then that's a no. You obey respectfully. Next, a Christian employee must submit sincerely. This word means a singleness of heart. The second half of verse 5, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. It means that we ought to conform with an undivided mind. Full force. An historian writes, the English word sincerity is an interesting word. It comes from two Latin words, sine, meaning without, and sera, meaning wax. Its meaning comes from the fact that in the ancient world, the making of pottery was an important, important industry, and dishonest potters, if they had a crack in the pot, instead of throwing it away, they would use, what, they would use wax, and they would cover the crack with, with wax. And from the outside, you'd look at it, okay, that looks really good. But when you put it to the sun, you could see a difference. Could you imagine spending your money, your hard-earned money, on a pot, bringing it home, and pour a little bit of water into it, and then after a while, when it gets warm, it goes through it? But because the wax was held up, it would... It would show, the pot or pot would show a lighter hue. 
Good pottery was sometimes stamped with the word sine sera, sincere, without wax as a proof of good quality. In the Greek language, there was a corresponding word that means sun-tested. Although, and I should say, however, that the word that Paul uses here is in the sentence is apolotati, the Greek word apolotati, which is the idea of generosity or liberality as well as sincerity. It's much bigger than just being sincere. It suggests that the employee should not hold back from his best, but should actually pour himself, pour himself out liberally in honest service. Full tilt. Not halfway. Not just working to get by. As you would for Jesus. That's the key. That's the key. If you focus on working for Christ, no matter who or how your boss treats you, you'll be able to persevere. Can it always be easy? No, it's not always easy. But if you work for Christ, for His glory, that'll get you through. And that's the focus through the entire passage. Verse 6 says, but as bondservants of Christ, but as bondservants, Verse 7 continues the thought, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. And in verse 8, he cements the idea. He says, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. Whether, wherever, whether excuse me, you mow lawns, you clean floors, you teach children, you drive a semi, you dig a hole out on the church lawn, you wipe a child's nose, or you're a pastor, all jobs are equally important because you are doing it ultimately for Christ, for Him. And that's because that's where God has you at that time. You do your work as to the Lord for His glory. You're not just doing your job to earn a living, which is important, which is important, but serving the Lord. A well-traveled parable tells of three workmen building a, a cathedral, and they were questioned by a visitor as to what they were doing, and these are telling. Listen to this. The first answered, why are you doing this, or what are you doing? I'm chipping these stones. The second answered, I'm earning wages. The third answered, I'm building a great cathedral. Which describes you? Are you working for a greater purpose? Are you working for His kingdom or yours? Are you working for the greater master? For His glory, you might say working for the boss who is perfect. Well, the next way that we're to serve and obey our earthly masters or bosses is conscientiously. Now, I'm going to go back to my days in high school PE. I don't know if it's the same. 
for you today. Maybe, I'm sure most of you have experienced this. I don't know if it's these newfangled high schools, whether they'd even have PE anymore, but back in my day, you'd go and you'd have your PE instructor. You'd have to dress out for PE, and you'd get all dressed, and you'd walk out. You'd run out. Yeah, you'd run out to the field, and you would start with your calisthenics. You'd first do your jumping jacks, and then you'd get to the, the push-ups. And the, the PE instructor, he would say, up, down, up, down. And of course, it meant up, down, up, down, up, down. And as he would turn the other way, he would still be yelling up, down, and sometimes we'd even be saying up, down, but we wouldn't be going down because we'd be watching him because he's not looking anymore. I can't say, you know, yes, I've done that. Verse 6, obey not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Now, when we think of high school PE, that really doesn't matter that much, does it? But have we seen employees do the same? Full tilt. I'm on it. I'm on it, sir. Yes, give me that extra stuff. I, I want to get it done. The boss or the supervisor leaves the room. Hmm. Playtime begins. If you're not under the careful, watchful eyes, the working ceases. There isn't any enthusiasm, there's no dedication, there's no heart. Jesus told a parable that seems to describe just this. I would ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 25 in your Bibles if you have it. Matthew chapter 25. Again, there are blue Bibles in front of you if you'd like to follow along. Page number 830 in the blue Bibles. It's called the parable of the talents. Jesus said, for it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received one talent and went and dug, he went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of these servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more. He's saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, 
Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of, the ma of your master. He also had received one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. Now notice, Jesus didn't care too much for laziness there, did he? You know that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has will, more be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even that he has will be taken away and cast into the worthless servant into the outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. God expects more from His children. Even if you're working a job that seems to be getting nowhere, and seems irrelevant, work it well. Do your best because you're a child of your heavenly master. You're a child of the king. You have a heavenly father who watches over you, who gives you ability to do these things, to be able to work. And hear me? It's known as being a person of integrity. What's integrity? That you do the same when no one's watching. And hear me? None of you are slaves today. The only, sla who, the only slave or the only master we serve as a slave is our God. No one says that you can't go elsewhere, but we're called to do our best. And men, this especially means you. You are charged by the Lord to provide for your families. He who does not provide for his family is worse than an unbeliever, the Scripture says. Men work hard hard, if you can. If you're unable to, pray hard. Support those who help you. Work hard and always work respectively, sincerely, and conscientiously. Finally, slaves, employees are called to accomplish their work pleasantly. We're, our, we're to go around our tasks cheerfully and pleasantly. Paul writes beginning in verse 7, he says, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. 
Have you ever met a Christian who looks and acts like they've been on a diet of lemons? Do you know, they're like, they're called sourpusses. You know, I read this week there, there are those who bring unpleasantness to everything, even driving. And as the little boy innocently said to his mother, Mommy, why do all the idiots come out when Daddy drives? Yeah, <laughs> you got it, huh? <laughs> Ouch. Verse 8, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. That is a promise that we need to keep front and center, center whenever we walk out the door. Reward. Reward. Stories told of an elderly missionary couple who were returning home on a ship after many years of sacrificial service in Africa. And on the same ship was Theodore Roosevelt, who had just come from Africa from a highly successful hunting trip. He was a, a huge, big game hunter. And as the ship docked in New York, thousands of well-wishers and the press, they came out to meet Teddy Roosevelt and to, to congratulate him on his great, great success on the hunt. But not a single person was there to welcome back the missionaries. And as the, the couple rode to, to the hotel that they were going to stay at for that night in a taxi, the man complained to his wife. He said, and I quote, It just doesn't seem right. We gave 40 years of our lives to Jesus Christ to win souls in Africa, in Africa, and nobody knows or cares when we return. Yet the president goes over there for a few weeks to kill some animals, and the whole world takes notice. But as they prayed together that night before going to bed, the Lord seemed to impress upon them. Do you know why you haven't received a reward yet, my children? It's because you're not home yet. Our reward's not always here. But your reward awaits. For all of us employees, we're called to give our services respectfully, sincerely, conscientiously, and pleasantly. I'll get to meddling now. Where do you stand? Where do you stand? Well, after speaking to slaves in our, in our era employees, Paul now speaks to those who are in charge. Into the first century, in the first century, it would have been masters. In the 21st century, we finish with the Christian employer's responsibility. And Paul begins with what I like to call the managerial golden rule. 
And if this was lived out, what a difference it would make. Verse 9, masters, do the same to them. Now, thinking back on mutual submission, does this mean that you, let the employee run the project? Does this mean that you let the employees take a look at the books? Does this mean that you give up everything to the employees? Certainly not. But what it does mean, you must treat your employees the way that you want to be treated. How do you want to be treated? Do you want respect? Give respect. Do you want sincerity? Be sincere. Do you desire conscientiousness? Do the same. If you desire a pleasant workplace, don't be that guy that eats lemons. Be pleasant. Do you want your employees to care about the product? Care about them. especially if they're brothers and sisters in Christ. Also, you must understand that we're all equal before God. Some of us have more authority than others on this earth, but we are all equal before God. Both slave and master are on the same plane spiritually. He continues, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who has, is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Now, there's no doubt that the master employer holds superior authority on this earth at this time. There is a time limit. It has been set. But there will come a time there will come a time in the very near future where there will be a dramatic equity. Everyone will be the same before the Bema seat of Christ if you are a believer. Every single one of us will go before God and He will ask you, what have you done? Will your work stand? Will they, or they, will they be burned up? This is not the judgment of life and death, but this is the believer's judgment. And all will be judged fairly, justly, and without partiality. What difference should living and walking in the Spirit make for an employer? I know I have some in this room. And I respect the men and women who are bosses in this room. I've seen nothing but respect given to their employees. But what does God expect? Bullying should never take place. Never threaten an employee with their lives to make sure that they do the job the way that you think it needs to be done. Don't threaten. But yet you need to tell them. Bullying should never take place. That doesn't mean that an employee isn't held to a fair standard. Each employee should be held to a standard. They need to know where they stand. 
And it doesn't mean that you don't make a tough decision to let an employee go. If they're not doing the job, if they've been warned, then that time has come. But know this, you will be judged. You will be judged. Prayerfully treat your employees fairly. Show interest in your employee's family. Pay for that quinceanera. Make sure they're provided for. Make sure that they're taken care of and that their futures are looked after. Be a boss like Jesus. And I'll finish this morning with the words of R.C. Sproul. He writes this, Sometimes we think that if Jesus were the boss of a work project, He would be so kind, gentle, and gracious, and that He wouldn't expect any work. But just a cursory glance at the New Testament where Jesus is constantly urging His people to be productive and diligent in their labor would show Jesus to be a demanding superintendent. Hear that. He expects work. He expects hard work, but He expects fairness. He would expect those who were under His authority to give honest effort and a full day's work, yet at the same time there would be no partiality, no injustice, no petty criticisms, and no demeaning attacks on the people's dignity. He is the perfect master who treats all those under His authority with love, tenderness, gentleness, justice, and righteousness. He is the model for anyone who is in a position of authority. Church, whether you are an employee or an employer, you are called to live under the power of the Holy Spirit, and you are under His authority. Again, there are no escape clauses. And when we do this, it will bring grace to the lost world around us. Treat people with dignity. Employees, treat your boss, your supervisor, those who are in authority over you with dignity. Bosses, you do the same because we have a master who is in heaven.